Hi, everyone. Welcome back for episode four of Unfiltered. Very excited to have you back for this week. It's really just going to be a bit of a chat between you and I for this one, meaning I'm going to be doing all the talking. That is how this works, unfortunately. Wish you were here to have a chat and answer your questions, but maybe one day in the future we'll be doing this thing live. For this week, we're going to be talking about something that comes up a lot in recovery spaces, comes up a lot in my work with clients that I get asked all the time across all of my different platforms, and that is about achieving goals in recovery, staying motivated in recovery. And we're really going to focus on those two points, goals and motivation. Obviously, my work as a recovery coach means that I am helping clients not only to set their goals, but in a day-to-day sense, in a very practical, hands-on sense, helping them to achieve those goals. The most important thing about your goals is that they are achievable. When I initially start working with people, I will always ask them for three of their main goals in recovery. And what tends to come back are really, really good goals, definitely in the long run achievable and absolutely reasonable to expect these outcomes from recovery. Things like achieving more food freedom, things like making peace with their body or accepting their body, things like overcoming fear foods of being able to break down their food rules. And as much as, like I said, totally understandable and reasonable goals, they're pretty lofty. They're pretty big. They're pretty general. There's not a lot in there to help us specify, well, what does that mean? That's really when we look at a goal, we've got to decide what does that mean? What do I do with that? So initially, the work that I do is to help them to break down those bigger umbrella goals into incremental goals that we're going to work towards Perfect example of this is when somebody comes to me and says they want to become an intuitive eater and they might be in eating disorder recovery or not. Regardless, becoming an intuitive eater is a long-term process, whether or not you have an eating disorder background or if you have you know, been a chronic dieter or maybe neither. Maybe you just want to improve your relationship with food. The intuitive eating process can still be a lengthy one. It would be wrong of me to give anybody the impression that, yeah, you just set that goal and start working towards it and that's it. You're there. You're done. In order to get to goals like becoming an intuitive eater or a similar one like full recovery, we need to start thinking of those things as destinations, not the process itself. So full recovery is a destination. Recovery and the stages and phases we go through and the goals we set within those stages and phases are the way in which we get there. They're the boxes that we tick before we realize we've reached the point on the map where we are fully recovered or we can confidently say that we're intuitive eaters. Very often I'll hear from people who get very demotivated or lack the capacity to continue on in recovery because they become so hyper-focused on the destination. They become so hyper-focused on being fully recovered, on being an intuitive eater, on having a more respectful, uh, accepting relationship with their body that they just feel totally overwhelmed by the fact that they are not there yet. So that is the purpose of checking in with yourself and making sure that you are setting reasonable goals is that that will contribute to your level of motivation. 
which is the second piece of what we want to talk about today. So if you are constantly comparing yourself to your end goal, your final destination, all you're going to see is the amount of space between you and the end of that process. And it will just feel further and further away. And it's therefore totally expected and understandable that you probably feel frustrated, that you probably feel uninspired, that you probably feel resentful of the process, that you at times just totally want to give up. And that's what we want to manage by managing our expectations and our goals. And I see it all the time. It's what I call recovery burnout. Recovery burnout happens for all sorts of reasons. And I think that this is a major contributor. So if someone were wanting to, for instance, have more freedom with their food and ultimately get to that destination of intuitive eating, what do those goals look like? What are the steps towards becoming an intuitive eater? Well, it really depends on the individual, but what we tend to see are a few different areas that we can approach and a few different stages and phases of eating that we can approach. And more generally speaking, we tend to see initially a sense of structure and planning that we have our three meals, three snacks approach, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack. And that structure is our first goal. For some people, just implementing that structure and getting from, you know, a minimal amount of eating to six meals and snacks a day is a goal in and of itself. And that there are smaller goals within that, that we break it down to, okay, so for this week, we're going to try three meals, two snacks, or we're going to try three meals, one snack, and then start building it up from there. And we then are tweaking that structure. And maybe putting in a new variety of foods and challenging foods once we have that structure achieved. Once we reach that goal, we then set a goal of introducing variety and maybe bringing in food groups, which are scary or particular fear foods, which are scary and challenging fear foods within and and food rules, I should say, within that meal plan structure stage of getting to food freedom. Then once we've achieved that sort of set of goals which fall under sort of the structured umbrella and adequacy umbrella we might move on to something which is a bit more flexible being a bit more flexible with time not so much being uh, having the expectation that we have to stick to those really set times in our meal plan so we might start to play with the time a little bit continue to play with fear foods and amounts of food and portions etc then we might move on to what we call conscious eating, which is taking what we've learned about nutrition, about, you know, adequacy and consistency and all those things and applying our emerging hunger cues and craving cues and that knowledge and awareness that our body is starting to show, which is what so much of meal planning achieves when people say, well, What is the purpose of going on structured eating? Well, there's a variety of reasons, but one of the key ones is that it does tend to awaken our hunger cues and our fullness cues as well, and eventually our cravings too. So once we can see they're emerging, this conscious eating stage is a bit more appropriate. 
because we can draw from information that our body is giving us because that trust is building up with our bodies again. It's deciding that, okay, we've gone a long enough period of time that I haven't, you know, gone back into sort of a restrictive mode. So I'll start to send some signals again. And from the conscious eating phase, intuitive eating is more possible, uh, is something that's more achievable. So you can see even just from that general breakdown of how we get to more food freedom, that the way in which you set your goals and set them so they're not miles apart, but just meters apart, that's what contributes to your sense of motivation. That is what keeps you in this process. Because when you feel that sense of success, when you can see your progress, when you can see it in a very real, tangible day-to-day sense that, oh, no, I'm not as structured as I used to be, or yes, my hunger cues are waking up, or I, you know, responded to that uh, craving and the consequence of it was actually positive. And I, I once again discredited and disproved what my eating disorder was telling me. Okay, so I can do that again. That positive feeling is much better than I am just failing at intuitive eating. I am not an intuitive eater. I suck at this. You're not there yet. You're here. And this is where, as per that example, my biggest piece of advice in setting your recovery goals is to meet yourself where you are. If you are not at a full recovery stage, that's okay. If you are not at an intuitive eating stage, that's okay. If you're not at a conscious eating stage, that is okay. In order for you to get there, you need to meet yourself where you are right now. And this is a good exercise even for recovery in a more general sense of being accepting of where you are and allowing yourself to be there, giving yourself permission to be there, giving yourself permission to learn what you need to learn draw from that experience and that time and that set of goals, what you need to learn to make the next stage and phase achievable, to keep your motivation where it needs to be, to do what you've got to do to recover. So taking your general goals and then breaking them down into smaller goals and get really specific. It's not just about, okay, well, I want to go from a meal plan to conscious eating. Or I want to go from a meal plan to something more flexible and then conscious eating. What are you actually going to do week to week? This is where I see with clients how much those very specific goals make such an enormous amount of difference to their progress. Because when they come to me the following week and they say, oh my God, Mia, I absolutely smashed the first goal that we were working on this week. I can see the sense of awakening they're having, the sense of realization that they can actually do this and how good it feels to do the right thing in recovery, which unfortunately feels like the wrong thing to your eating disorder. This is the great conflict of recovery is that as you are succeeding and progressing in recovery, you will feel like you are failing your eating disorder. Just as when you feel like you are failing recovery, your eating disorder could never be doing a bigger, you know, cheerleading set for you. It is, it couldn't be happier. So there is that contradiction, which is tricky. However, when I see them realize that they can actually achieve these goals once they are set at an achievable level, the impact is enormous. 
They might even come to me and say, look, I half was able to do the goal and I feel like I failed and, you know, I feel really badly about that, that I couldn't do it. My answer is always, you didn't fail. You just figured out where you are. That just gives us more information. The thing I always tell clients when we are setting goals and setting up what we're going to be doing for that week and what they're going to be working on, my advice to them is always, I'm not expecting you to come back and say you did this perfectly. In fact, if you do that with every single goal that we set and every activity you work on and every food that you challenge, A, I'm going to stop believing you because that's not possible. You will be the first person of all time to do absolutely everything in recovery perfectly without an inch or an ounce of discomfort or pain or frustration. Uh, But also... I will be concerned because that's just so unlikely that that's going to happen. So uh, the, the idea that we're going to be able to do everything perfectly is incorrect. It's not even the goal. The goal is to see it as an experiment. Whatever you are setting for yourself, the initial idea is just to see what happens. Yes, over time, we want to change it and improve our anxieties around food, maybe how we interact with movement. But initially when we set these goals and we're sort of playing around with how our, you know, uh, how we respond to recovery is to figure out, okay, where are the sensitive areas? Which are the spots where the eating disorder self really pops up or really takes issue or is uh, the most dominant? And so to see these goals or challenges as experiments opens up your spectrum of thinking. It means that you are more able to observe yourself than judge yourself. If you're judging yourself constantly through recovery about how well you're doing or how perfectly you can do it, you're kind of missing the point. And that is another big piece of advice that I have to give in setting goals in recovery or anything really, but particularly salient with recovery is that You are going to suck at this. (laughs) If there's any guarantee I can give to anybody who is embarking on recovery, who is in recovery, who is beating themselves up for not doing as well as they think they should or how they perceive they should have done or how other people are doing it, you are going to suck at this. We all have sucked at this. We all will suck at it. If you've, if you've been in it, if you are in it, if you're going to be in it, it applies to all of us. Yes, there are certain instances or demonstrations of recovery online and offline, which do give an impression that this can be done perfectly or only within a certain set of conditions. It's not true. It's inaccurate. Even the people who appear to be doing it so perfectly absolutely not can guarantee if they're doing it well then they are definitely not doing it perfectly because it is within your stuff ups your slip ups your failures whatever you want to call them that's where you figure out where the work really needs to be done it is in the moments where you are absolutely having to reflect on what went wrong how could i have, how could i have approached this differently what skill or tool might have helped me in that moment If you're missing those opportunities, then you're probably waiting for a big realization bomb to hit you down the track when it does hit because nobody gets through this thing without having to really look at where they can do better. That's the truth. 
Very often I will hear from people and it doesn't surprise me that there is such a level of perfectionism that we tend to apply to our eating disorder recovery, just as we have to our eating disorders. And that is purely probably based on traits and personality. I know that I am a perfectionist. I think I will always be a recovering perfectionist. As much as I am fully recovered from my eating disorder, perfectionism is something I am still working on. Hands up if you're with me. But this is how I approach the idea that your perfectionism is getting in the way of your recovery. If your perfectionism is the one that is setting the goals, if your perfectionism is the one that is measuring your ability to achieve or how you are performing in recovery, then the wrong person is running your recovery. Your eating disorder self, not your healthy self, is running your recovery. There is no one on the planet who is less equipped to advise you or guide you, set your parameters or your goals in your recovery than your eating disorder self. If you can imagine, say, Amazon, not the rainforest. This could turn into an environmental podcast in which I rage about the fact that they're on fire a couple of weeks ago. We won't. That's another time. But uh, imagine the company Amazon being run by a three-year-old. I mean, an actual little three-year-old sitting in a suit at a boardroom table. Adorable image, I agree. But would it make a lot of sense to you if you worked for a massive company like Amazon and they were like, we want to introduce you to our new CEO and you walked into the boardroom and a three-year-old in a little cute suit with little glasses on and a laptop in front of him was, or her, a female CEO is also possible at three years old, um, equality people. But imagine your feeling if you saw a three-year-old running the company that you're working for. You'd probably be terrified. You'd probably be fairly worried about job security and, you know, the idea that maybe the whole place is going to get burnt down because it's going to turn into utter chaos because a toddler is not equipped to run a company. A toddler is not equipped to run your recovery. Why is the three-year-old like an eating disorder? Well, take some time listening to your eating disorder. What does it sound like? How would you describe it? Sometimes we can believe it sounds dominant and scary and intimidating and overpowering. And all those things are correct. But a toddler can be those things too. If you ever watch a parent trying to appease their child in a supermarket who's losing their mind over some lolly they want or toy they want, that kid has a lot of power. The parent is mortified, doing everything they can to try to corral that child and and diffuse and take attention away from the public humiliation they're suffering. That little person wields a lot of power and they wield that power with irrationality with their reactive emotional nature, with their inability to reason with themselves or anybody else, with their desire for immediate results, aka the toy, which translates beautifully to an eating disorder wanting a behavior and throwing a tantrum and saying, well, I want to binge and purge. I want to binge and purge and I can't focus on anything else. It's the only thing that's going to make me feel better and I want it, I want it, I want it. If that doesn't sound like a three-year-old absolutely flipping out because they want a toy and they absolutely believe that that is the thing that they need and want and is going to make them happy 
I don't want that person running my company. I don't want that person running my recovery and they shouldn't be running yours either. So starting to see those moments when your perfectionism pops up, when you're more reactive, frustrated, I want a behavior and I want it now, or I want to give up. This is, you know, too hard and, you know, being impulsive. When that pops up, that is the toddler eating disorder self trying to take control of a process. It has absolutely no place or qualifications running. So when you are setting your goals, when you are working through these processes, you are totally entitled to feel frustrated. You are totally entitled to feel overwhelmed at times, but don't let the eating disorder self step in and start to A, set your goals, B, judge your results and C, tell you what you are and are not allowed to do in your recovery. That is absolutely imperative. And the person who needs to be in charge is the healthy self, which is the parent in the supermarket metaphor. They are the person who knows that, no, the toy is not going to make this child feel better, just as your behavior is not going to make your eating disorder self feel better. Binging and purging will make it feel better for 10 minutes, just as the toy will make the child feel better for 10 minutes, and then it will start screaming again. The tantrum will recommence just as it will with your eating disorder self, because the eating disorder self doesn't really need a behavior just as the toddler probably doesn't really need that stuffed toy. What the toddler needs is a cuddle and probably a nap, maybe a change of nappy, aka diapers for all my uh, North American friends. They need probably something to eat and to be told that everything's going to be okay and they're loved. And guess what? That's what your eating disorder self probably needs too. Probably needs some soothing, some comforting, some compassion, some food, some water, a nap, it does not need the behavior because if it did, it would shut up and it wouldn't start screaming again. But give it 10 minutes and because it hasn't actually had its needs met, it will demand another behavior. It will demand another roundabout of behaviors and rules and things that it is convinced will make it feel better even though it has all this evidence to say that it won't. Because it is impulsive, it is reactive, it is not what needs to be running your recovery. So another key part of your goal setting is to really, really ensure that you are the one, your healthy self is the one who is setting the goals, who is taking measure of the goals, who is judging how well you are doing in your recovery because your eating disorder self will always tell you that you are not doing well, which is Enormously ironic because not only does the eating disorder self tell you that you suck at your eating disorder, it has the audacity to come marching into your recovery and tell you that you suck at that as well, which again, three-year-old in a suit, definitely not equipped to judge or uh, determine what you are doing in recovery, what you need to do and how you're going to do it. Back to the practical stuff with goal setting, working on a couple of goals every week is usually a good place to be probably between two and four goals every week and they don't all have to be food related Uh, they don't all have to be behavior related sometimes we want to be doing things like okay I'm going to set a goal to practice a mindfulness exercise two to three mornings this week for two minutes start small not just starting small but starting flexible like I am going to challenge this fear food of mine 
two to three times this week for breakfast or two to four times or one to three times if we're starting out. The importance of flexible goals is that we don't allow that perfectionism to come screaming in and determine that we have failed because we were unable to stick to this very strict, rigid goal that was set. Part of recovery and learning to be a recovered person and how we take care of ourselves is learning to be flexible, is learning to be adaptable, is learning to give ourselves wiggle room and to make things achievable and accessible for ourselves. You are the person determining these rules for yourself. So if you determined the rigid, impossible ones, you can also determine the flexible ones. There's no great big higher Wizard of Oz power who has come up with these rules for you. They have come from you. They can be changed by you as well. So flexible goals, which start to expand, like I said. So we might say we're challenging a fear food at breakfast one to two times initially, and then maybe three to four times the following week. Always taking note of what has worked the week before, always taking note of how we approached it that we know was helpful, maybe things that were unhelpful, maybe what we'd change next time, and then extending the goal to three or four times, and then to four to six times, and then to every day this week. And once we've done that enough times that it feels like it has moved significantly far away from the anxiety that we felt when we did it initially uh, we start to tweak those and maybe expand on them like okay I'm going to try this food and I'm going to add something to it and I'm going to start again with one to two next week so building on the old goal and then introducing something new so we're sort of layering these goals and proving to ourselves and building this evidence that you know what scares us initially, we can get used to, can stop feeling scary, can stop feeling anxiety inducing. That's one of the greatest bits of feedback and parts of working with clients is when we've been challenging, say, a fear food or a food rule that felt impossible to challenge, that felt impossible to change. And I swear they, when I set these goals for them, and we're agreeing to them, I can see the level of discomfort and the fact that they're really mulling over whether or not they're going to come back next week, (laughs) which they always do. Kudos to them. And initially, it can be tricky. We are obviously learning the most right at the beginning because we are intentionally making ourselves uncomfortable. Like I said, treating it as an experiment and seeing what comes up so we can then kind of strategize how we're going to continue to set these goals and tackle this certain area but what inevitably always ends up happening there is no exception to this is that weeks down the track or you know maybe a couple of weeks a few weeks maybe for really tricky rules or foods it might be a bit longer inevitably when I ask them oh how's it going with this are you that still in rotation? I can see from your food logs or what we've discussed. How is it feeling though? What's your what's your attitude towards it? And it's like, oh, that, oh, that's not a thing anymore. And this is the very thing that I swear they were going to storm out of session uh, about weeks before when I first asked them to try them or challenge this food or challenge this rule. Weeks later, it is a non-issue because of the amount of evidence we've built up and because of those flexible goals and flexible targets that we've set 
they have built up this evidence, this wealth of evidence, which disproves everything that they believed previously about this food or rule or practice or movement or whatever it might be. And it happens every time that they get to this point, even when we have experienced, you know, a time and time again, this, you know, process of, oh, I'm terrified to a few weeks later. Oh no, that's just normal food to me now. Then when we set the next challenge, they still have the same response as they always do, which is, oh, no, 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 this one, this is the one I definitely can't do. This is the really scary one. And guess what? We disprove all of our beliefs, our eating disorder beliefs about that one as well. And it gets more tolerable and manageable for them the more times they have overcome these smaller goals. Because as I said, it is evidence. It's firsthand testimony that they know that they've overcome this before and challenged it before and that it has become so much more A, tolerable and B, easy. Another big piece of advice about goal setting is the language that we use. If there's one word that I can really impress upon you that you need to use when setting goals, when talking to yourself about your recovery, in any sphere, whether it's food, whether it's behaviors, whether it's movement, whether it's body image, whatever it is, is tolerable. That is your goal. First, to make things tolerable. Not to love it, not to like it, not to enjoy it, not for it to be easy, but for it to be tolerable. The amount of times on our Instagram lives, so every Monday, if you're not aware, I do a live Q&A just about recovery advice, obviously as a coach, but also from my own experience. And uh, anybody who's following there and joins them will ask questions every week and I'll do my best to answer as many of them as I can. But a word that comes up all the time is easy or easier. How do I make this easy? How do I make it easier? And therein lies the perfect example of setting a goal, which is too out of reach. If you want to make it easier, that's not going to be easy. (laughs) Ironically, Uh, if your goal is for things to be easier, it's the wrong goal. Initially, it's not going to be easy. Initially, it's not going to be easier. What it can be is tolerable. Tolerable does not mean absence of bad feelings or negative feelings or things being difficult. Tolerable is your ability to ride out the negative or the difficult. Tolerable is your first place that you want to get to. And from tolerable, you are then able to make it manageable. You are then able to make it a little bit more accessible, a little bit more easy, and then a bit more intuitive, a bit more natural, a bit more conscious. These words that imply that it is easier. But initially, your concept of your goal should probably fall under the umbrella of tolerable. Make the food tolerable. Make your body image goals tolerable. Make your behaviors tolerable. Make your abstinence from movement. Did I just use the word abstinence properly? Do you know what? I'm leaving this in. We're not cutting any of this. (laughs) Um your uh if you you know cut down on your movement you want to make that as tolerable as possible which again does not mean it's not going to feel 
bad, does not mean it's not going to feel uncomfortable, but that you are going to build up a body of evidence to say that first and foremost, that you can tolerate those feelings. And very often I have people say to me, Mia, I can't tolerate these feelings. I cannot get through these moments or these emotions or these thoughts that I have about myself. And you absolutely can. That's a bit of a story that you're telling yourself. Even if you have only had a few uncomfortable experiences in your life or experiences with loss or awkwardness or heartbreak or disappointment, you have evidence to say that you can tolerate it, that you might not do it perfectly, but again, that's not the goal, but that regardless of how you have been able to tolerate it, you are just learning healthier, better, more effective ways to tolerate it. So you can then get to managing it and finding it easier and then it being a non-issue. So really reflecting on the language that you use about your goals, about your expectations of what this process is meant to be like, getting rid of words like easy or easier uh, are really, really important because that is going to determine where you are setting what you're going to be jumping over. If you think about yourself clearing a hurdle or going over, you know, is it long jump? No, that would imply that you're going length as opposed to what I'm trying to get to, which is height. So high jump, friends. I'm excellent at sport and sport terminology and should probably watch the Olympics the next time it's on. Uh, But uh, if you were to set the bar of a high jump that you needed to clear and you intentionally put it somewhere that you knew from looking at it that you had no hope of clearing How on earth could you ever expect that you are going to be able to build up your skill set and tools and ability to one day clear it when it is that high? You've got to put it somewhere you can get over it where, yeah, you've got to work towards it and practice and, you know, get a sense of what it takes to get over that initial lower bar. But you've got to incrementally get it up to that height or you're never going to clear it. And as I said before, you are actually the one who is determining how high your goals need to be. There is no big, great, powerful wizard who is setting it for you. You are the one who gets to determine what you can clear and whether or not that should be the level at which you are setting your goal. It doesn't need to be out of your reach. It can be within your reach. I see this with clients all the time when they turn out to have secret goals that we haven't discussed before, (laughs) that we discuss goals together and then suddenly they're experiencing burnout or they're experiencing, you know, a bit of recovery resentment. They don't, they don't like the process. They don't want to do it anymore. They're exhausted. They're demotivated. And as it turns out, when we get into it, they actually have these much loftier, far less reasonable goals than what we've ever discussed together. And it usually has to do with body image. Like, I just want to like myself. Great. We all do. (laughs) We all do. Uh, But in order for you to get there, you've got to first position yourself somewhere where liking yourself can be reached, that you need to first aim for tolerating your body image and respecting it and being grateful for it and focusing on its function 
and then to get to a place of more acceptance, uh, maybe indifference, you know, not really caring that much about it or thinking about it too much. And then, like I said, being in a place of uh, gratitude, liking seems a lot closer to gratitude than it does to hating it, right? So how are you meant to go from hating it to liking it? Not really going to happen. You've got to climb that ladder. You've got to set that next rung and say, okay, that's my next place that I'm going to get to. And then all of a sudden, liking or loving is within your reach. It's not so far above you that it just feels impossible and you just want to give up because what's the point I'm not there meet yourself where you are I certainly was not great at setting goals in my own recovery process I even struggle with my goals in life day to day now and have to apply this thinking and this you know uh, philosophy that I teach to others I really it's something I have to refresh myself with all the time particularly in my recovery I didn't have really a framework for what it was supposed to look like or where I was heading. So I kind of made it up as I went along, but I certainly did have really unrealistic expectations. I think I was on day three in my recovery and I made brownies. What an excellent decision 72 hours into your recovery. Probably unlikely that I was going to be able to do that in any way that was Um, going to be reasonable and it wasn't I broke my blender because I was trying to throw the ingredients into the blender so quickly that it broke and it was also like a $40 blender because I was living in a dingy apartment earning nothing and this blender was literally just entirely plastic and the thing started to I think it was even smoking it smelt it was burning plastic and that's what my apartment smelt like for about three days And I completely freaked out, fell on the floor, was punching my fists into the floorboards of my apartment, which given the quality of the apartment hurt a lot because we had some like loose nails hanging around, sticking out of those things (laughs) and completely lost it, completely had a meltdown. And my eating disorder self popped up to say, see, you can't do this. You can't do anything. You're not going to be able to do this recovery thing. You're never going to be able to get rid of me. You're a failure. You might as well give up now, blah, blah, blah. And I had many instances like that where I allowed that perfectionism to run my goals, to set my goals, to dictate my recovery. And when I look back now, it's like, honey, You do not need to be making brownies on day three of recovery. (laughs) That is not a goal that is necessary, that is going to, you know, get you anywhere that really means that much. You can start a little bit smaller. You can be a little bit more gentle with yourself. If I had a client who came to me now and said, I tried to make brownies on day three of recovery and I, I broke the blender and I lost it and I had, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, who told you to make brownies? Uh, What on earth were you doing making brownies? You are not, you know, allowing the right part of you to run the process. Of course, that was impossible. It's totally understandable that that feels impossible because you're not there yet. You're not meeting yourself where you are. So I'm somebody who certainly had to learn this for myself, who had to, you know, a lot of the advice that I dispense is yes, down to my training, but it's also my anecdotal experience that I can see, 
My success rate was so much higher when I was allowing myself to have goals which I could achieve versus when I set goals that were being determined by the part of me that had no business stepping in and trying to contribute to my recovery, my goals and judging how I was meant to recover. So I hope you guys found some of this chat helpful. I would love your feedback as always. You can go and leave comments on the SoundCloud page. You can also come and leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts, which I would so appreciate. And if you'd like to, you can also drop me an email at unfilteredwithmia at gmail.com. Would love to hear your suggestions for any episodes. There will be an interview with an amazing person up next week. Please keep an eye on my social media about that. I will see you guys next week for another episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Love chatting to you and I will speak to you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye.